Raj at Large, live from Aylesbury. Please welcome your host, Nigel Farrar. Farrar's at Large, we're here in Aylesbury, we've got an enthusiastic crowd. Has Ricky Sunak done enough to do to alleviate the problem? That's the first thing we'll talk about. We'll talk about HS2, it's going to run right through the middle of this county. We've got local singers, local Paralympians. It's going to be a great show with a great audience. crowd I would say um, a, a GB News audience it is after all the people's channel and that's why we've got people here this evening and we're going to go on taking the show round the country now we're in Buckinghamshire wealthy Buckinghamshire that's at least the well that's the perception don't worry you'll get your chance <laughs> we're in HS2 country we'll talk a little bit about that um, and it's a county I know well. I campaigned many times here over the years. I even nearly lost my life in a light aircraft crash in Buckinghamshire, but I won't hold that against anybody here at all. <laughs> Today, a big day. Party gate's over. Boris Johnson has got away with it. It's all over. We're moving on. And so a big statement today in the House of Commons from Rishi Sunak. And this is the government's attempt to deal with the cost of living crisis. This is what Rishi said at 12.30 in the Commons earlier today. This government will never stop trying to help people. Yeah. To fix problems. To fix problems where we can. To do what is right as we did throughout the pandemic. We need to make sure that for those whom the struggle is too hard and for whom the risks are too great, they are supported. This government will not sit idly by whilst there is a risk that some in our country might be set so far back they might never recover. So what does it all mean? It means £400 for most households as a rebate on their energy bills. It means actually up to £1,200 per household for those at the lowest end of the ladder. Those on benefits, those not in work. That, of course, including a council tax rebate. The package in all is going to cost about £15 billion. Pounds. £5 billion pounds of that is going to come from a windfall tax, or should I say more accurately, a temporary targeted energy profits levy. <laughs> well, that's what the civil service do, I suppose. Um, and there's a big question here. Is it right? Is it right to put this big tax on oil and gas companies? Those that watch this show will know. I think it's a very big mistake. I think if you put firms off investing, you get fewer new jobs created in the future, and you don't get the growth in the economy that you need to get us out of our current state of stagflation. But for you at home, my question is, is this enough? Has Rishi Sunak done enough to alleviate the cost of living? Let me know what you think. Farage at gbnews.uk. My own view is that for those working, for those in, on average salaries, actually, whilst £400 is welcome, the rise in national insurance that just came in is about double that, and they're still going to find they're well over £1,000 worse off on their energy bills as well. So my feeling is, for those at the bottom, this is a very big, generous package, but for working people and working families, well, they might say half a thank you, but that really is about it.
Now, let's talk about local and national politics together. I'm pleased that Martin Tett, the leader of Buckinghamshire Council, is here with me. Thank you very much indeed. Great to be here, Nigel. I'm a big viewer of uh, GB News as well, so We're good to be very pleased to hear it. What a good start. That means you're going to get easy questions, obviously. No. So it's Buckinghamshire, it's gin and jags, it's huge detached houses, everybody here is incredibly rich, and we need to level the country up, so really, you don't need any money at all, it's all got to go to the Midlands and the North. Is that about right? Well, we don't want to talk about your stereotype of your lifestyle, but... Um... I'm telling you, I'm telling you, if you read what the national press write about this county, that's what they say. And you're absolutely right, Nigel. I mean, the reality is, when I deal with government, the stereotype here is of, you know, big houses, long gravel drives, everybody's rich and prosperous, and it's just not true. It's absolutely not true. If you look around this county, we have serious areas of deprivation, we have massive differences in terms of income, we have differences in terms of life expectancy, and of health and well-being. You know, and that's a really big challenge for us. And it's something as a council we're very concerned about and we're trying to address. But the perception in government is just, you know, the opposite, quite frankly. Yeah. No, it is. It is. So you have to lobby government pretty oh, yeah. hard. You know, we talk about the levelling up agenda and everybody thinks it's all about moving money from areas like this yes. to the Midlands and the North. Yes. Well, actually, what I'm trying to say to people like Michael Gove is look at areas within areas. There are pockets of real uh, affluence, quite frankly, in the north of England. And there are period pockets of deprivation. And you look down here, there are pockets of real deprivation. Parts of central Wickham, parts of central Aylesbury, parts of Chesham, you know, really deserve more than they're getting. You know, and we need government to recognise that and give us the ability to make some real life changes down here for people. Now, one thing that we're all paying for that is coming through the middle of Buckinghamshire is, of course, HS2. Originally estimated to cost £55 billion, the last estimates I saw were in 2019 at pushing £100 billion, and now with cost inflation and, and raw material inflation, uh, goodness knows where this finishes up, £150 billion. I mean, it'll work out, actually, uh, in taxation, thousands of pounds per average household for the entirety of the country. And I have to say, if I was living in Buckinghamshire, I would see this vast construction coming through the middle of my county at no benefit whatsoever, it seems to me, to anyone living in Buckinghamshire. What is your position as a council? <laughs> well, I've spent 12 years of my life fighting HS2, right from the idea when it was like a twinkle in Philip Hammond's eye. You know, and I've always argued that it's a complete and utter waste of money. You know, we should have been looking to improve the existing lines rather than building this new one. And you look at the damage it's doing around here. You know, anyone who passes through Buckinghamshire, literally from the southeast to the northwest, you're going to see this great jagged scar right the way through the countryside. Mm. It's destroying the environment here, and it's a complete and utter waste so, of money. So why are the Conservative Party or the Conservative leadership so obsessed with doing it? Well, I can tell you the Conservatives around here have opposed this for over 12 years, really, really strongly. You know, and we've stood out against the party nationally. But you've also got to look at the Labour Party and the Liberal Party, sorry, Liberal Democrats these days. Yeah. You know, they both nationally support it as well. So this is where you've got central government of all the parties supporting what I think is a massive folly and most local politicians of all parties strongly opposing it. Boris Johnson's reputation with Conservative voters, and he's going to stay on for now as Prime Minister, but Boris Johnson's reputation is with a certain segment of Conservative voters pretty well trashed. Uh, yes. Partygate's done him no good at all. There was a by-election in Buckinghamshire not so very long ago that the Liberal Democrats won. Are you fearful in this county of the Lib Dems at the next general election? 
Was there a by-election? Oh, yeah, I seem to remember that. Yes, yes there Cheshire was. Cheshire and Amersham. Right? Yes. yes. I remember that. Yes. I a lot of yes, and your party got a good kicking. And we it? did. And we did. And I, you know, I recognise the fact that Dame Cheryl Gillan was a fantastic MP there. Absolutely brilliant. You know, but when she passed away, we lost that to the Liberal Democrats. You've got to recognise the Lib, De Lib Dems are really good. They're a machine when it comes to running by-elections. They throw everybody at it. And they're on the doorstep. You know, I came across materials saying, you know, vote for their candidate. She'll cancel HS2. Mm -hmm. She'll give all the NHS workers a massive pay rise. Mm -hmm. She'll fill every pothole in the county. You know, lots of stuff on the doorstep being said to get but people's it, votes. But it worked. It did work. And you've got to give credit. All over the country, when they run by elections, the Lib Dems are really good at zeroing in on local mm. issues like that, promising the earth, but of course failing to deliver. And that's what we've got to call them out for. And you'll find if you talk to Labour members, they'll tell you exactly the same about what the Lib Dems do in their areas. As I've well. been up against them. I, I know their tactics, but I do think they could be giving the Conservatives quite a tough time at the next election. Yeah, I think that's in true. In some of these areas. But it goes back to what you just said about the levelling up agenda as well. Mm. I think it's really important the government wakes up to that and recognises it's not all about hoovering money out of areas like this and passing it up to the North and Midlands. It's about levelling up within areas so that actually we get a fair share of the cake as well, so we can do some levelling up within Buckinghamshire and show it's not all about the North and the Midlands. Final thought, cost of living, I'm sure you hear that every single day yep. from people here in this county. Has Rishi Sunak today done enough? I think what he's done is actually quite clever. Because, you know, forget the timing of it, which is, oh, sure, just coincidental. Absolutely. Yeah. Leaving that Clearly. aside, leaving that aside, you know, what he's actually done is actually weighted very heavily towards people, you know, he's giving money to people with disabilities, to pensioners, those on low incomes and so on. You know, and actually it's weighted towards those I think most in need, which I think is absolutely right. Everybody gets something. You could argue actually that probably everybody shouldn't get something. I think the really better off probably shouldn't have. But actually, what he's done, I think, is a little bit for everybody. I think it's quite a clever piece of you know, arithmetic. The biggest concern I've got is that 15 billion, you know, the cost. Five billion comes to the windfall tax. I may disagree with you on the windfall tax, by the way. Bad for business. Bad for business, but they've made super normal profits not in out, 20, of, out of inflated prices. Not in 2020. Prices. In 2020, they no, no, if you, I, Absolutely. I get the fact if you look down, they've had a torrid couple of years. Mm. But today, they're making absolutely astronomic profits, mm. not out of their own efforts and hard work. They're doing it because of global commodity prices. Well, a Conservative Party that punishes success, there's a new one for us. But it's not their success. <laughs> it's, it's Mr Putin's success. Martin Tett, thank you very much indeed for joining us here. My pleasure. So you see, it is a very tempting argument. And actually, snap opinion polls show that a lot of people are very tempted by this. The oil and gas companies have made bumper profits because the price of oil and gas is through the roof. I, I mean, you know, my suggestion was not to put this tax on, but to demand they reinvest the money in new offshore and onshore production so that we can become self-sufficient in energy. There will be some tax breaks for that reinvestment. Uh, but when you put a, you know, an arbitrary tax, a retrospective tax, on a sector of the economy, then who's to say what will come next? The president's been open now to put super taxes on any business, and if you want foreign investors to come to Britain, and they've got that kind of threat facing them, I think they'll be reluctant. Now, Andy Meyer is Chief Operating Officer and Energy Analyst at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Andy, let's start with the windfall tax. We know what's going to happen with the windfall tax because this isn't the first time it's happened. 
the government back in 1980, another Tory government, put a windfall tax on the North Sea. What then happened was a collapse in investment over the course of the next 10 years until their tax revenues from the North Sea were down by 90% by 1992. Gordon Brown put a special tax regime on the North Sea, then raised it. George Osborne raised it. Every single time they did, there was a collapse in investment followed by a collapse in tax. By 2015, the Treasury was paying negative taxation in the North Sea as a result of high taxes. They then had a panic, introduced lots of special allowances, and then tried to claw it all back in the hope the companies would come back, but they didn't. So what Rishi Sunak's just done in the middle of an oil boom is to put both together at the same time and cross his fingers and hope that it's not going to do damage, but it will. There's going to be enormous damage to that and onshore as well. No, I'm concerned about that. And I, as I say, I, you know, to me, I think what the Ukraine war has exposed is that we should be producing all of our energy and as much of our food in this country as we possibly can. And somehow... <laughs> the government... Andy, in terms of the package that Rishi Sunak is offering people to alleviate... This, this real cost of living crisis, I mean the estimate that 40% of the country could be in fuel poverty by the autumn of this year, the average energy bill per home going up to almost £3,000 by October of this year. Has he done enough? So the spending side of it's good, and you're not going to get dissent on that from the left or the right. You need to spend that money because this is a global supply shock. It's nobody's fault here that those bills are going up. It's to do with the shortage of oil and gas, and that means the prices rise. The only long-term solution to that is more oil and gas, and in the interim, you've got to help people. This will help the least well-off. Yeah. You're quite right that it's not going to help people on low incomes very much. A little bit, but not enough. And it's really going to hurt. So there may be more measures announced in the autumn on that basis. But, I mean, he's just, just put national insurance up for a lot of people out there in the middle-income brackets. I mean, the increase in national insurance is far more than they're, than they're going to get back on this rebate, isn't it? Well, it's a really important point that you don't make anything cheaper by putting a tax on it. And you don't make anything better by putting taxes up. So the same applies for the national insurance as it does for the windfall tax. Somewhere somebody's going to pay. There's no magic money tree by which we can just automatically make things cheaper right. with taxes. And do the Labour and Liberal Democrats have any genuine economic alternatives to offer to what we're getting from a Conservative government? Well, they're delighted. I mean, they're setting the agenda. Rachel Rees was dancing around Parliament earlier saying that we're winning the battle of ideas. It's hard to argue with that. I mean, Rishi Sunak is now the most successful socialist chancellor this century. <laughs> <laughs> and just how many U-turns? Because I heard Boris Johnson a week ago say he didn't like the idea of putting this tax on the oil and gas companies, and that was when I knew that he would. Uh, <laughs> We've lost count of the U-turns, haven't we? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's almost impossible. Yeah. You, you, can't, you, you can't look at this government and say where they're going to go next. Dominic Cummings, not a popular fellow, but totally right about the Prime Minister. That is a shopping trolley, a wobbly shopping trolley, careering all over the place, picking his policies from left and right, and just hoping to stay in power and that nobody notices when he's had a party. Well, <laughs> on that note, Andy Meyer, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Okay, in a moment, we will talk about the Home Office immigration figures that have just come out for the last year. We'll tell you what the numbers are. One or two of you may be quite shocked. We must be getting something right. 
Now, some of your reactions to that debate earlier. Has Rishi Sunak done enough? Marzi says, I cannot understand why the government have to put their hands into taxpayers' money to help with this. Why are these power companies not doing it? Well, the power companies are being forced to do it. The question is... Does that put them and other companies off investing in jobs and growth in this country? And that's the point I'm going to keep making. Ben says, it's a token gesture from Sunak. Well, it may be token, but it's quite an expensive token. Helen says, no, and until someone grows a spine and takes on these ridiculous eco-warriors, things are going to get worse. Well, in particular, Helen, we can apply that to electricity, where 25% surcharge is placed on everyone's bill in this room to pay for renewable and social obligations. And that's a campaign and a theme that we'll continue with here on GB News. And finally, Alan says, it's not a handout, it's our money. Well, that's right. They put your taxes up, we give half of it back to you. <laughs> now, one of the big stories of the referendum, one of the big shocks to the political and media class in Westminster was how much this country cared about the levels of immigration into Britain. And I'm talking actually about legal immigration. I'm not even talking about those that cross the English Channel. And one of the reasons that we voted Brexit was to get back control of our borders and, and to lower the number of people coming every year. We're open-minded to good people coming into our country. We always have been, but it needs to be controlled. Well, Home Office figures out this morning show that a total of 35,000 people last year entered the country basically illegally. But if you then look at those that came on student visas, those that came on family reunions, those that came on work permits, first thing you notice is the vast majority now coming from outside the European Union. But the second thing you notice is that figure is 830,000. It is a, a simply mind-blowing number. Now it may be, and they're, they're not holidaymakers, they're people actually getting the right to come here and reside. Now, it may well be that some left as well. We haven't got those figures yet. But I'm joined by Anthony Glees, Professor of Politics and Director for the Centre of Security and Intelligence Studies at the University of, where else? Buckingham, of course. So we're very pleased to have you. Anthony, I'm very struck that since the referendum, everybody in Westminster is patting themselves on the back. Isn't it marvellous that immigration has disappeared as an issue and no one cares anymore? That really is what they think in London, isn't it? Well, uh, yes, I think it is. And I, I think the figures that you provide are absolutely horrifying. And I have to say, as I said to your office, you kindly invited me to come and speak to you. You and I disagree fundamentally on, on a number of things. However, your... Uh, you make a really important point about immigration, which is that a country is perfectly entitled to decide who should and who should not come and live here. And that's not a wicked thing to say. It's, it's part of democracy. And, and you, you, Nigel, you, you struck a very important note. And the other thing that I think you uh, got absolutely right was that people want to have borders that are secure. To deliver security is really the fundamental duty of the state, as Margaret Thatcher said. And whilst it is true that the vast majority of people who come and live in this country 
are not jihadists, are not uh, neo-Nazis or anything like that. There is a security aspect to immigration, and therefore it is important that we know who's coming in. And in 2015, I was one of the few academics who was pro-European, who said that Frau Merkel was doing entirely the wrong thing, admitting 1.5 million people into Germany, about whom she knew absolutely nothing, yeah. who will have included jihadists, who once they're in Germany could then wander around everywhere else. And I discussed this at the time with people in the Conservative Party because I am basically and always have been a pro-European Conservative mm -hmm. ever since I was a schoolboy. And they wouldn't really take this matter seriously. They wouldn't understand. So I think we've got a situation here where this country is accepting a very large number of immigrants from Africa and Asia, European uh, migrant workers, some of whom will go home, uh, you know, they're needed for, for picking crops. You say, yeah. we should be growing our own food. I couldn't agree with you, but there's nobody to work on the fields. It's rotting in the fields. And if I may just say... As, uh, it, as it, we can give people work permits as opposed to automatic right to settle, and that's yeah, a very big ab difference. Absolutely, yeah. and of course European migrant <coughs> workers were often in that position. But dare I say it, we have a Home Secretary, Priti Patel, and I supported her. Again, I think I was the only British, British uh, academic who supported the policy of saying that when Shamima Begin went to join the so-called Islamic State, she threw her British passport away. Mm. It's as simple as that. And if we decide who can come in and who can come, not come in, then Priti Patel was doing absolutely right. You're a pro-European. You're a pro-European. Pro yeah. But isn't the truth of it that when it comes to the cross-channel illegal immigration and deporting people, all the while we're signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights, we're not going to have proper control of our borders. Well, I don't... I don't simply, we need to deal right, with that? I, don't we need to get out of that as well? I, no, no, I don't agree with that at all. I don't agree with that at all. Priti Patel says she is controlling immigration. You provided the figures, Nigel, that shows complete nonsense. Yes. It is complete nonsense. She talks tough, yes. but actually she she does not deliver. And uh, as for taking back control and dis dis deciding, she's asking the government of Rwanda to decide who should or should not come to this. That's not taking control. It's passing it to the fourth most unhappy well. country in in the world. So... You know, one should not let this thing go away. What is the right thing to do? Again, I've said it uh, in 2015. There's nothing wrong with processing applications to come to this country outside this country. I've suggested Arab North Africa would be an ideal place to do it. And there you would decide you'd be saving people the risk of crossing the channel and traipsing over Europe if they didn't stand a chance. Well, There's nothing wrong with that. I, I, the truth of it is. But the government isn't doing <coughs> it. And it talks big, yeah. but it does not is, We may come at all of this from different perspectives, but we're able to have a civil, open, proper debate here on GB News. <laughs> and we both agree something must be done. And thank you for Absolutely. coming on this evening. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you. <laughs> now... My what the Farage moment. There may be some of you here in the audience, maybe at home, thinking about getting presents for your children, your grandchildren. Well, I may have just the thing for you. Because Barbie doll have announced their first transgender doll. <laughs>
in the image of Orange is the New Black Star, Laverne Cox. Yes, absolutely. And the global head, Lisa McKnight of uh, Barbie Doll, says that uh, she couldn't be more excited. It's all about inclusion. So there we are, Barbie now doing transgender dolls. That solved all your problems for birthdays, I am sure. Now, we get to, we get to the riskiest part of the programme. It's Barrage the Farage, with members of the audience. I have their names, but I have no idea what they're going to ask me. Tony, you're up first. Good evening. Good evening, Nigel. My question surrounds around retail in the UK today. Last week, the CEO of Memoness tried to pressure the Chancellor to abandon online tax in a vain effort for the government to re-energise the high street in the UK. Over the past 10 years, many changes have taken place in retail here in the UK. Nigel, I've got two questions. Mm -hmm. Do you believe it's right that the councils and governments to re-energise high streets in view of the decline of retail here in the UK? And more, a prophecy from yourself where do you see retail in the UK over the next 10 years? OK. Prophecy. Goodness gracious me. Um, the high street's really important, and it's really important socially. You know, my village that I'm from, the last shop to close was the post office. Yeah. Now it's the church and the pub. Um, and there's nowhere else that people actually meet. So community loses out massively when high streets and shops go. Look, there was a trend that's been going on for years, buying online, having things delivered to our door. Uh, you know, the pandemic accelerated that massively. Uh, but, you know, you can be an online retailer with a warehouse in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Your overheads are relatively cheap. Yeah. If you're over one of the big global companies, you're probably not paying that much tax either. Um, and I think something much more radical has to happen with high streets and business rates. Frankly, if we're going to save the high street, we're going to have to abolish business rates to make sure those high streets yeah. and those shops yeah. thrive. I can't see any other way around it. My prophecy is this. I think the days of us going to the local big city as a family, as a group, going to the department store are gone. I think our cities, our inner cities, will become places that people start to live and that will bring a new kind of retail. Yeah. It'll bring grocers, it'll bring butchers, it'll bring little corner stores. So I actually think that the, the, the almost erosion of the big shop and people coming to live in the centre will see more new small shops. So I don't think the future of retail is, is, is absolutely over. I really, really don't. But to save the high street, it's going to need some very, very radical government thinking. How do you feel? Thank you. How do you feel? Well, we've seen many changes, haven't we? We've mm. seen the decline of department stores. Online is not a price advantage for customer. It is purely a delivery advantage for customer. Yeah. The problem that British retail have is, number one, business rates. Sadly, we've got the big five major supermarkets in this country, all jostling. Their whole business generated round market share and their buying capacity is generated bound market share. Yeah, it's tough. One year, 18 months ago, Mr Sainsbury was trying to merge with Asda. That would never happen because the big suppliers, Lever Brothers, Procter & Gamble's, Kellogg's, would all close shop because it would domineer their buying capacity. 
Yeah, it's tough for the small guy, but hey, we're on the side of the small guy and the small yes. woman. We really are. Thank you very much for your question, Tony. Let's go to uh, Rachel is next. Hi. Hello. Um, Nigel, you said you used to be a metals trader, mm. but I was just wondering what other jobs have you done? First job I ever did uh, was caddying at the golf course. Second job I did was serving behind the bar in the pub after hours. Oh, I didn't say that, did I? Um, <laughs> I worked behind a bar a bit as well. And yeah, when I was 18, I went to work straight in the city of London in the commodities business. Uh, and we traded and dealt in copper, aluminium, lead, um, zinc, nickel, tin, all the industrial metals. And that gave me a real sense of business footing. Um, I understood a bit about how companies ran. I, run, I ran my own firm in that industry for nine years. Um, I had customers that I spoke to from all over the world. And it was kind of what made me think, why are we tying ourselves completely up with our European neighbours when there's a great big world out there and like two billion of them are in Commonwealth countries. So I think those jobs really shaped my view. Politics, never my ambition at all. Never intended to go into politics, but I was so driven but this idea we should be an independent country, that that's what I did. And I guess I found that I was, you know, fairly comfortable talking on my feet, unafraid to stand out from the crowd. Um, and that's why I'm here now on GB News, because in UKIP and the Brexit Party, we disrupted British politics. And I want to help this channel disrupt the media. It needs it. <laughs> Greg. Hi, Greg. Hi, Nigel. Yeah, um, just going on from the conversation earlier about HS2 mm. going right through Buckinghamshire, um, I, haven't pretty, I haven't got a problem with that. What I have got a problem with is, is those trains will be rumbling through here at breakneck speed, but this town doesn't um, um, prosper from it because there's no railway station. It takes almost an hour to get into London from here. Our terminus is 35 miles away. That's a disgrace. Yeah, I mean, HS2 is... Look, let's be honest about it. HS2 is really good for wealthy business people yeah. who, want to, who want to go to London for the day and come back or go to Manchester for the day and come back. And the idea that it will drive jobs from London to Manchester, it'll probably do the opposite. It'll probably do the opposite. In France, the TGV drove even more business to Paris. So for you guys, you know, we can talk about the Chilterns, we can talk about ancient woodland. You know, some parts of modernisation are ugly and unpleasant, but they're necessary and we have to live with them. Power stations or whatever it may be. All right? we, motorways, we accept that. We can't live without it. I just can't, frankly, see the point of HS2. I can get on at Euston and be in Manchester Piccadilly, in the heart of the business district, in two hours and five minutes. Building that at a cost of 150 billion to save 20 minutes, when actually it's quite comfy on the train, I can't see what it's all about. There are more people working from home anyway. Buckinghamshire, Warwickshire, and counties like that are big losers. I've been opposed to it, Greg, from the very start, but for some reason, Boris and Rishi want to continue. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Quickly got time for two more. Daphne, hello. <laughs> Nigel, um, do you choose which areas you come to for this programme or do you wait until you're invited? 
no, we, uh, no, we, I mean, if we waited for the invitations, it could be a long time. We, we, uh, no, we've chosen well. I mean, look, Aylesbury's a great place to come and do this show. Do you know why? Not just because they're nice people, but because it was 52, 48, leave, remain in the referendum. This is the heart of England, and I thought it was a very good place to come to. But no, we're going to go to, you know, we visited, I mean, already we've been to Port Talbot, we've been to Hull, uh, we've been to Medway, we've been, so we've been to a mixture of Labour areas, Conservative areas, Lib Dem areas. Um, so, you know, we will keep on doing this every fortnight for as long as we possibly can. I hope Thank you. you. And finally, John, the last one. Hi, John. Good evening, Nigel. Good evening, everybody. Um, slightly light-hearted, perhaps, but what chance of getting Donald Trump on one of these shows, or perhaps on Talking Points? <laughs> well, well... <laughs> Um, if it was talking pints, it would be Diet Coke with him. He's never touched alcohol in his life. He's, I think he saw the rest of his family drinking a bit more than that. And his brother died very early of alcoholism. So he doesn't drink, which is probably very sensible if that's in the family. Um, and I did interview him for GB News. I was there back in November. Um, at some point, let me tell you this, at some point, I'll get Trump on the show. All right? Don't you worry about that. I'll do it. Thank you. Now... Local girl from Marlow, Naomi Riches, MBE, Paralympics gold medalist, will join me for Talking Pints. All of that in two minutes' time. On GB News, we're celebrating the Queen's Platinum Jubilee with four days of special coverage between the 2nd and the 5th of June. Join us live up and down the country, sharing your memories from Her Majesty's extraordinary reign. Please send in your stories by emailing us at jubilee at gbnews.uk or tweet us at gbnews. We can't wait to hear what you have to say. GB News is the people's channel. And before I introduce Naomi Rich's MBE, let's see her in action at the 2012 London Paralympics. the gold medal no. there, but Kate watching it all as well. Oh, she flew in on a helicopter just before. We could hear it, and we were trying to focus on our warm-up, thinking, who's that? You know, Fantastic. Fantastic. No, that really must have been amazing. It was amazing. Now, you were born with a difficult medical condition, yes. which you've had to fight all the way through. Yes. 
I'd never heard of it, so tell us about it, please. Okay, it's called achromatopsia, and I was diagnosed when I was a few months old, um, and it basically means that there's a protein missing somewhere when it comes to my rods and cones on my retina. So I haven't got any colour vision, struggle with bright light, um, and can't see much detail. Also can't judge depth, so if I knock this over, it's because it's... I can't quite see where my wine glasses are comparison to me. <laughs> 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 Land over your nose. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, yeah. it's, 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 it, it's not obvious. And I think that's the, the tricky thing. Um, invisible disabilities, again. But for me, you know, crossing roads and just day-to-day -day activities can be quite challenging sometimes. I often have to, like, even for tonight, I've texted a friend and said, what colour is this top? Because I can't remember. Right, so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And school was difficult, yeah? School was difficult. Um, I was the first statemented child in Harrow. Um, I started school two terms late because Harrow couldn't pay for me to have a learning assistant initially. Um, and being in mainstream school, it was challenging. Um, I felt a lot of the time like one number, I was one, one student that wasn't doing so well, but everybody else was doing fine, so they didn't really try to help. Some teachers, I have to say, were incredible, and they all stick in my mind forever. But I did feel that I was up against a, a brick wall a lot of the time. My parents fought tooth and nail, my mum in particular. And there must be lots of kids still today in that kind of position. Yes, there are, but it's much better than it was. I do a lot of work in schools with kids, and it does seem a lot better than it was back then. But in, you, in the end, you found your way to Buckinghamshire, yes, and I did. to university yes. here, and to Marlow, yep. and to rowing, yep. um, and you've been swimming before, so yep. clearly sport was always a big thing. But then, just as you're getting ready, and, and you're... And you're embarking on what's become a fantastically successful mm. uh, rowing career, career, you have a major road traffic accident. Yes, um, that's when judging distances becomes an issue, is when you can't see how fast cars are moving towards you down the yeah. road. Um, yeah. I misjudged his speed, he was speeding, and I was crossing the road, and I was hit. Um, I had two skull fractures and five broken ribs and a broken shoulder, yeah. and I was in an induced coma for a week. Um, but I honestly, truly believe that if I hadn't, I'd just entered into the rowing world at that point, I'd become a world champion for the first time. And I really believe that if I hadn't had that structure and those people around me and that, you know, the physio and, and people that could help me get physically better, I don't think I would have got better as quickly as I did. So I've got a lot to thank rowing for. And swimming before, you were good at that as well? Yeah, I was quite good at that. Yeah, I enjoyed well, it. I see, I see you won lots of things <laughs> at swimming. And rowing, you've had an amazing career in rowing. I mean, was the 2012 London Paralympics... Was that the peak of it, or...? It was, it was the peak of it. It was amazing. And in that clip you saw, I was lying down back in, in the boat, partly because Dave, who sat in front of me, stopped rowing, and his, he lay down, his oar swung over his head and hit me in the stomach. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was wearing goggles, so I couldn't actually see what was going on. So everybody who's visually impaired wear, wore, the rules have changed now, you don't have to have those, but wore goggles, so you're all as blind as each other. Um, and I didn't even know we crossed the finish line because the dawny roar was like so loud. I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't hear the Germans who were in the lane next to us, who yep. we were closest to. I couldn't hear the Always our nice pops. to beat the Germans. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, so Dave's all swung over his head, hit me in the stomach. I fell backwards onto Pam's feet and said, What has happened? Um, and managed to hear her say, We've won. And I was like, Oh, thank goodness for that. You were rowing competitively for what, about 10 years? Yeah. Yeah. How do you keep going with that? Because I, mean, I, I remember the famous Steve Redgrave. Yes. If you ever see me in a boat again, shoot me. <laughs> yeah. and, and then he came back and did another Olympics. Yes. But how do you keep going with that? Because it's a very punishing regime, isn't it? It is a punishing regime, but you always have goals, you always have targets. So even if it's a test in the next few weeks or a tri the trials in the next few months, or so it's almost like your life is mapped out um, year on year. You know the date. I mean, I knew the date. The, the world championships yeah, yeah. coming. And the world championships and Europeans and World Cups and all these things going on. 
on. So, and you know, it's amazing how you go, well, cracky, it's, you know, three months until I go on holiday and then suddenly you're going on holiday. And you know, where do those three months go? But when you're in an environment where it's very repetitive, I mean, really, rowing is basically leg, leg press repeated a lot of times. It's quite a and repetitive it's getting up sport. Early, and it's getting up early in the morning and yeah. training. Yeah. Especially in the winter. Very cold, very dark. But you get to have a second breakfast. You get to eat a lot, so that's always a good thing. So how many, how many calories do you use up rowing, uh, Quite a few. Um, I would say for the girls, you'd probably be between somewhere between three and 4,000 training full-time, and wow. boys probably, probably somewhere between four and five. Any nutritionist out there, there you can correct So the good news is you can eat loads and have a drink yeah. as well. Well... You can drink lots of water, as long ah. as you stay hydrated, because when you're on training camp, you give your coach a pee sample in the, in the morning yep. to show that I am hydrated and I have done all the right stuff. Yep. Especially when you go to a hot country and you're not used to it. Hydration or dehydration can really impact your, your performance. So in the end, that was it for rowing, but you've moved on and you're doing other really interesting things. And you're becoming sort of a, a senior stateswoman, really, in, <laughs> in the rowing world, because... Like that. It's the Henley, the famous Henley Regatta coming yes. up in the two weeks, three weeks' time. Yes, so Henley Royal is at the end or at the end of June, beginning of August. And Henley Women's, which is two weeks before, um, is, is, yes, in 22 days' time. And what will you be at Henley? I will be the chair of Henley Women's Regatta. Well, well done. Amazing. I reckon that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we hear a lot today about the word inclusion, yeah. about you know jobs and the things being, being yeah. accessible for everybody. Yeah. And I guess, I guess the impression that we have of rowing mm -hmm. is that it's not the cheapest hobby to pursue. That's true. Um, is this something that people from all classes can get involved with, or is it much easier for those that have got money? It's an interesting one. I think rowing used to be perceived as a rich person's sport. Mm. And it, if you want to own your own boat, and although it is expensive, yeah. but rowing at a rowing club, you pay your club membership, you have coaches there, you have a whole rowing community that you can be part of. I mean, Marlow Rowing Club, my, my home club, I love it. I've been a member since 2005. I know everyone there from the 94-year-old to the 12-year-old, you know, and it's such a beautiful community to be part of. But it is a sport that you can do no matter what your ability and disability. We've actually, at Marlow, got the biggest para squad in the UK. And we've got learning impairments, visual impairments, physical impairments. If you want to get on the water, we're going to make it happen. It's just, it's spectacular in that way. You can do anything. No, that's good. And, and the Paralympics, has that now achieved the status that it deserves? I think so. And I think London, well, we can always, always get better than that. Always, always. Uh, always look for a little bit more. Um, but I think the London 2012 Games, which I cannot believe was a decade ago. It, that, that's just mind-blowing. But I think it, that's really started to, change, started to change the perception of disability sport. I think people, I think the ticket fiasco was part of it. People couldn't get Olympic tickets, so they went to the Paralympics mm. and they went there thinking mm. they'd see mm. disabled people playing sport. And they came out having seen mm. phenomenal individuals doing incredible things. And I think it really started to change people's perceptions. They've been living in Buckinghamshire for some time, yep. in Marlow, and as a result of your gold medal, you have a, a piece of, well, I think it's immortality. There is <laughs> yeah. a gold post box yep. in your honour. <laughs> we're going to have a look at There it is. There it is. <laughs> uh, I tell you what, that's pretty cool, isn't it's it? It's very cool. <laughs> I mean, that's got to feel. So you can't really leave Marlow now, no. can you? That's it. I mean, <laughs> Buckingham sure has got you forever. Yeah, they have, absolutely. And on from that, I know you're going out, you're doing 
motivational speaking, uh, and I guess encouraging those that, that have also got disabilities to believe they can achieve. Yeah, but everybody, everybody has got something that they believe holds them back. Whether it's a disability that's classified medically, everybody's got something they believe is something that's going to stop them achieving. And what I really want to do is be able to help people understand what motivates them, what drives them, what their strengths are, what they can offer. Because it's not going to be necessarily what somebody expects from themselves or somebody other people expect from you. It might be something that you haven't tapped into yet. And so with the coaching that I do, with the workshops that I can run, with the speaking, you know, it's, it's really important for people to understand what their superpower is that they might not have discovered yet. The thing they're good at. The thing they're good at. Yeah, I know. I think, some people go, I think some people go through life and never find the thing they're good at, no. but, but, but also it's confidence, isn't it? It's confidence, yeah. People having the belief, younger people particularly, having the belief that they can go yes. out there and do something yeah. and succeed. Absolutely. So where do you go? Schools or, I mean, where does this take place? Schools, businesses. Um, I work with, I have individual clients that I do coaching with. Um, I, I, will, I work with businesses. Um, I've, I've just done some work with a, actually a gaming company um, in, in Malta, so slightly international, which is even more exciting. Get to go abroad. Um, and, you know, working, working with people on their ability to communicate with, with people that are different to them. Everybody's different. And the, the saying is everyone likes to be, you know, treat people the way you'd like to be treated. No, treat people the way they want to be treated. That's the important bit. Because how you, how you like to be treated is not the same as the person that's sat next to you. Um, so, yeah, tapping into all of that, emotional intelligence, motivation, I love it. People are fascinating. You never know who you're going to meet next. No, well, I'm sure that's true, and I never know with this show who I'm going to meet <laughs> no. next. But I have to say, I think your story is a, a great, inspiring story of overcoming difficulty, of being recognised in the most extraordinary way with that post box <laughs> for the gold medal, and that's quite right too. And I really believe that you're one of those people that can go out and inspire others and make them do really good things in life. I'm Naomi Riches, MBE. What a pleasure to have you. Just goes to show, if you believe in yourself, it's amazing what you can achieve in life. Well, we're pretty much done, pretty much done, not totally done, but pretty much done here in Aylesbury. I hope that you've enjoyed the programme at home. We've certainly enjoyed it here. I think, I think the audience have enjoyed it here. Uh, they certainly engaged. And yes, we're branded as the People's Channel, and we're going to keep taking this show out round the country to the people. And the next one we're going to do is in Portsmouth. It'll be two weeks today in Portsmouth. Can't tell you the venue just yet, but if you want to come along, if you live in Portsmouth or down there in southern Hampshire, if you go to gbnews.uk, you can book your tickets. And I, I warn you that we advertised this and, and it was filled within absolutely no time at all. So if you want to come, you live down in Hampshire, you better get on the website PDQ. But don't do it just yet. No, no, because we've got a song for you. Of course we have. We've got local singer Laura Williams and she's going to sing a song that I, I'm guessing Boris was singing in number 10 last night. So please welcome Laura with I Will Survive. <laughs> First I was afraid, I was petrified Yet thinking I could never live without you by my side Spent so many nights thinking how you did me wrong And I grew strong 
I learned how to carry on and so you're back from outer space. I just wanted to find you here with the sad look upon your face. Should have changed that stupid luck. Should have made you leave your key. If I don't know for just one second, you'd be bad to bother me. Go on now, go. I walk out the door. Just turn around now. Cause you're not welcome anymore. Weren't you the one that tried to hurt me with goodbye? Think I'd crumble. Think I'd lay down and die. Oh, no, no, no. I will survive. Oh, as long as I know how to love, I know I'll stay alive. I got all my life to live. I've got all my love to give. And I will survive. I will survive. Hey, hey. Everybody, we're down, please! <laughs>